0: Music. I'll turn, if you will, in, uh, into the book of Romans, chapter 1. We'll be looking at mainly uh, verses 16 and 17, chapter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I thought it was going to be, be able to uh, get to more of this um, this passage but um, of chapter 1, but I'm going to leave that uh, for next week, 17. So. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, these two verses. And first, what I will do is um, is I'll talk a bit about verse 17. I'll read it in just a moment, and then we'll come. We're going to loop back around to verse 16, and then work back again, um, and try to get a big picture of of where this uh, where this whole book is going. And because it's about to begin, so he thought it had already begun. It has has not. The book is about to begin. Uh, when he reveals the righteousness of God uh, the righteousness of God but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and that's going to be where he's going to uh, take us first that's going to be kind of the opening scene of the book of Romans the wrath of God upon mankind so but for today uh, we're, we're going to spend some time in 16 and 17 let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, and, and especially this book, for without it, uh, we would be much the poorer in our understanding of what you have done in this world and what you continue to do, even in our own uh, midst, in our own lives, our own congregation. We're so grateful for it, and uh, we just pray that you would give us insight, and <clears throat> give us understanding and, uh, in your word, and uh, we just thank, thank you for that. And We pray, Father, uh, today that your spirit would be outpoured upon this congregation, that we would see things more clearly than we ever have and walk uh, with renewed life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, I'll start in, in verse 14 and we'll read through verse 17. I am under obligation, Paul says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We are going to back out like we've been doing for the past couple of weeks, and we're going to look at the big picture of what's going on in this book and get a glimpse of of the greater story that Paul is telling that has been working itself out in the world since the death and resurrection of Christ. For too long we have been very short-sighted and very myopic in in our reading of scripture, looking at the minutiae to the neglect of the bigger picture. With the consequence that, whether looking at Paul or the Gospels or the rest of the books, we make these texts say things they never said in their contexts. Or, at the very least, we make them say much less than they say within the context of each of the books. We must do the work of reading the larger story and communicating this. Since we too, through faith in the Messiah of Israel, are woven into its world, the world of the scriptures, the world of God's creation, the story of scripture has become our story since we are in the Messiah. Last week, we spent some considerable time looking at the mindset of the Apostle Paul, as seen, first of all, in his prayer in chapter 1, And then his return to these concerns at the end of the letter in chapter 15. And then his self-description of the apostolic ministry, as seen in 2 Corinthians 5 or broadly, chapters 3 through 5. It was because of the phrase, the righteousness of God, that we went there. A phrase that we're going to encounter in our text in verse 17 and throughout the book of Romans. Again and again, Paul will use this phrase, and so we must understand what he means by it. We went to Second Corinthians because it was there that Paul made this confusing statement that through the sin offering of Jesus, the one who knew no sin, we, in this case the apostles, we become, he says, the righteousness of God in Jesus, in him, he says. We saw there that this means something like the following. God's faithful plan to save the world is being carried out by his apostles, his ambassadors, Paul says, and it's the ministry itself that Paul and the apostles have been given, and this is what he describes as becoming the righteousness of God. As he says, it's as though God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. God planned to save the world through the seed of Abraham, Israel, the servant in Isaiah 49, and he revealed it in the scriptures. It was through Jesus, the embodiment of Israel as faithful son and Israel's representative, that he would accomplish this plan. And Jesus, post-resurrection, had sent out his, his apostles as an extension of his own servant ministry. And it is this ministry that is referred to as becoming the righteousness of God. Definition, then, of the righteousness of God in Paul is not the kind of moral perfection that he somehow gives to his people who believe in him, though it is true that he is morally perfect. It is not the sinless perfection that is somehow transferred to the believer. No, in short, it is God's faithfulness to the covenant, covenant he made with Abraham. God's righteousness is God's faithfulness to the covenant he made with Abraham, And Paul will say here that it's this righteousness of God, that is, God's faithfulness to the covenant with Abraham, that is being revealed in the gospel, in the good news. And it is this gospel that he will begin to expound in the next verses. Now, the reason I'm going on about this terminology is that if we get off on the wrong track with this letter, we will end up expounding something other than what Paul is after. And we will not see how the whole letter holds together around this one phrase. But if the righteousness of God means God's faithfulness to keep his covenant with Abraham, then everything falls into place in the letter. It makes perfect sense of the way that after a description of the state of both Jew and Gentile as under sin, that the covenant of Abraham in chapter 4 takes center stage not as some good example of how Abraham got into a relationship with God before Jesus' time, however true that is. No, but as the very purpose for which God sent Jesus, to bring about the promise to Abraham to make him a huge family composed of Jew and Gentile. Romans 15.8 confirms this. For I say, Paul says, that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Christ became a servant to the circumcision to the Jews on behalf of the truth of God in the scriptures to confirm the promises given to the fathers. This is the story. What is written about Abraham, <clears throat> Abraham, Paul says, is for our sakes also. Paul says, so that we might believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead and become part of the family promised to Abraham, because Abraham himself and Sarah, being as good as dead, were themselves raised up, so to speak, and given a son, a descendant, a lavish act of grace that confirmed the promise that God had made to Abraham, that he would be the first of a worldwide family. And his point is that God's righteousness his faithfulness to the promises of Abraham, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has been carried out in Jesus. And as the final act in which the plot of the whole story has been brought together fully and finally. In light of this discussion of Abraham, then in chapter four, Paul must explain then how Israel's law fits into God's plan. If covenant membership is now reckoned on the basis of faith in the Messiah. Then what does this mean for the law? This is the question he's asking. All of this is kind of under the rubric of the righteousness of God. How is God being faithful to his promises? And he must answer this question. How is it that Israel's law fits into God's plan? We will see this. when We'll get to chapter 7 in more detail. But Paul there demonstrates that the good, though mysterious, purposes of God were at work in the giving of the law in this way. God, through the law, was dealing with the sin of Adam in order to rescue the whole world from corruption and decay brought about by sin. And this is how he does it. God, through the law, given to Israel, had wisely lured sin into one place, into Israel, and then to Jesus, the representative of Israel, the embodiment of God, in order that he would there condemn sin, In the flesh of Jesus. This whole act of deliverance has been about the rescuing of mankind from the sin of Adam and he does this in the flesh of the Messiah. In order to set free those who receive him and by the Spirit leave Egypt to go to the promised land as we'll see in chapter 8. Therefore the law too is shown to be an integral part of the plan and faithfulness of God his righteousness. This then raises the question generally about generally unbelieving ethnic Israel. What about ethnic Israel? If the law was temporary, if it was there to to bring sin into one place and then to bring it into the, the flesh of the Messiah to condemn it, what then is going to happen to ethnic Israel, especially since most of them have not believed? And the question becomes for Paul, in light of Israel's unbelief, Has the word of God, read, God's faithfulness to his word, his righteousness, has that failed? But no, once again, the righteousness of God is upheld, Paul says, since there in chapters 9 and following, 9 through 11, Paul rehearses the history of Israel from Abraham through the Exodus on through to the current exile of Israel, foretold by Isaiah and still ongoing in Paul's day. He goes on there to demonstrate that God's people has never consisted of all of ethnic Israel, but always a remnant thereof. After all, he says, consider Isaac, that he was chosen rather than Ishmael, Jacob rather than Esau, etc. And Isaiah himself says, if the Lord had not left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like unto Gomorrah. But that remnant is evidence of God's continuing righteousness, his plan for the whole world, for the rescue it is of the whole world. Thus God's righteousness, his faithfulness to the promises, and his reputation as creator and covenant God, his faithfulness as the God who makes promises to the fathers, is what is at stake for Paul. Now here in our text today, Paul is about to go on to demonstrate the way that God's righteousness is He says, being revealed or unveiled in the gospel. The term revealed is a technical word that could be translated as being unveiled, since it refers to the bringing to light that which was hidden, nothing less than an apocalypse. That's where we get the word apocalypse from. Uh, He's bringing it to light. He's unveiling it. Like an angel in an apocalypse, looking at the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, he goes on to explain what is revealed by those events and how, in these events, God's righteousness is upheld. Now, there are five things he says about this unveiled good news, which we will unpack, ending finally with the way that Paul is using the book of Habakkuk Habakkuk 2 4 specifically book of Habakkuk, in his argument that now the work of God has come to its completion, or at least the final act of uh, of an almost finished uh, play. First, he says, he is not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the very power of God. Now, this in itself is pretty remarkable when we sit and think about it in silence. Put yourself in Paul's position, Standing before kings and rulers, proclaiming a message that most of them reject. A message that seems obviously on its face to be false. That a young Jew, claiming to be Israel's king, summarily executed by the Jewish leaders and the Romans, God has raised him from the dead and made him king and ruler of the whole world. That's the message. Imagine yourself standing before the emperor and telling him that he has a Lord and his name is Jesus. And he's a he was a 30 year old Jew that that died on the cross. In fact, your government crucified him, but he's your Lord and you need to bow before him. Ha ha! right? One might say, but not only that, that God will one day judge the world by Jesus himself. That's what he says in Romans. Tell that to the emperor. But yet Paul says, I am not ashamed of that, for it's this message that is the very power of God to all who believe. When this news about the new king, crucified and raised from the dead, is preached, God's very own power goes to work and is manifested, as most, hopefully all of you and I know. The Spirit goes to work as it is proclaimed, and people find that it is true that in the announcement of the good news, they understand the very love of God toward them, and they believe. They respond to this call. They are justified, declared righteous, and in the new covenant family. They become part of a new family built around the one who loved us and gave himself for us. There's no other way, there's no other way, but it's this strange and mysterious message that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Paul says later, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word about the Messiah. It is truly astounding what Jesus has wrought in the world through a crucifixion. Secondly, he says, it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As I've mentioned many times before, and as we'll see throughout this letter, the covenant order, The rescue of Israel, and then the world through Israel, understand as being through Jesus, Israel's king and representative, must be maintained. Thus this phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, must stand not simply as a cute phrase that means for everyone, but rather it is another testament to the faithful promise of God, his faithfulness to his word, that God has in a wise way And in spite of the unfaithfulness of Israel herself, as we'll see in chapters two and three, God has been faithful to keep his promise to save the world through Israel, through Jesus, the faithful Israelite, her representative. And it also has a darker side, which we'll see later, when Paul brings into focus that day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. He says there in chapter two, there will be tribulation and distress upon every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first, he says, and that's our phrase, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. This will be on that day when, according to my gospel, he says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Chapter two, verse 16. Thus, it's not simply salvation that is unveiled in the gospel, but God's righteous judgment as well, since Jesus himself has been exalted to the right hand to render judgment upon the world. Thirdly, he says of the gospel, and we can pass over this fairly quickly since I've already spoken of it at length. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. I want to note, though, that When we give this phrase its full meaning as the faithfulness to the covenant promises, we find out, indeed, why Paul was not ashamed of it. It is one thing to possess the message, or this message, about Jesus, with no anchoring of it in the promises of God, as so many do today. Jesus loves you and died for you, without noting how this was the culmination, the very culmination of the promises of God how God had been at work for thousands of years working this out. We must be very careful when listening to slick preachers when they say we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Such do not know the God of the scriptures. Their God is their belly, and they do not serve the Messiah. There are some who are saying this, but it is a pagan gospel when they unhitch. From the scriptures. Fourthly, he says, it is revealed from faith to faith. Now what in the world does he mean by this? That God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, but from faith to faith. The answer to this question lies in the multifaceted nature of the word translated as faith. The word can either refer to faith, as in the belief, the trust that people have in God, or it can refer to faithfulness, whether of God's faithfulness or man's faithfulness as he entrusts himself to God. And this is what I propose, that we translate it as faithfulness, from faithfulness unto faith, perhaps, or from faithfulness to faithfulness. A couple of examples, and hopefully this will become clearer. In chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul celebrates either the faith, or the faithfulness of the Roman church when he says your faith or could be your faithfulness is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. There's a slight difference in meaning if we, if we translate it as faithfulness. But an even clearer example of this usage where it should be and must be translated as faithfulness comes a little bit later in the book where the, world, the word clearly means faithfulness. And it refers in its positive use to God himself, in other words, God's faithfulness. And in its negative use, he negates this term, the unfaithfulness of Israel. It refers to Israel's unfaithfulness to deliver the very oracles of God that they have been given for the nations. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul, after placing Israel in the dock alongside the Gentiles for possessing the Torah relying upon the law, boasting in God, knowing his will, approving the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and yet being the ones because of whom the name of God is blasphemed. he goes on to say, the Jew is advantaged in this one way. They were given, they were entrusted with the oracles of God with the implication that they were entrusted with them so that they could be priests. To take them to the nations. And then he says this, and this is verse three, three, three. What then, if some were unfaithful, same word but with a negation on it, will their unfaithfulness not nullify the God? Now the faithfulness of God, in other words, if the Jew was unfaithful to deliver the oracles of God to the nations as lights to the world and guides to the blind? Does this nullify the faithfulness of God? There it simply would make no sense to translate the word as faith, but faithfulness. It's their faithfulness to to, to the the divine purpose that God has for the world in taking the oracles of God to the world that they have failed. Thus, they have been unfaithful. But the issue is not simply has Israel believed, though that is important. The issue for Paul is that Israel was unfaithful to be a priest to the nations. She was unfaithful in her priestly obligations. She was entrusted with the very oracles of God and then failed to live them and deliver them. And then Paul's point is that in spite of this failure, this unfaithfulness of Israel, God's faithfulness, the same word, will not be nullified. Mm -hmm. So it uses it there. You could, if you translated it, God's faith will not be nullified. It would make no sense. This word in this case must be translated as faithfulness. Once again, we're back at the same place. Let God be true, he says. Let him be faithful, and let every man be false. Thus, I propose in, in our phrase from the that the righteousness of God is revealed in it, in the gospel, from faith to faith, that we translate it as from faithfulness, that is God's faithfulness, to our faith or faithfulness. It will help. It will help us to understand what's going on. Think about that one uh, as, we, as we go through this place. That's how, he says, the good news is being revealed. From God's faithfulness to human faith. Fifthly, Paul says that this is confirmed by the prophet Habakkuk, where he says in in chapter 2, verse 4, this is in Habakkuk, you can go ahead and flip over there. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. That's what he says in, in Habakkuk, and Paul shortens it, the righteous shall live by faith or faithfulness, with that same term being used as a quote from the Septuagint. So in uh, in your Bible, if you open up to Psalms, middle of your Bible, take a right turn, go past the big prophets, get to the little prophets, and it's like the eighth one in. So take a right, and you'll find Habakkuk. It's a little book, so uh, it's like two pages long. Now, with a cursory reading, we might get the impression that Paul has just pulled out his concordance and found the word faith or faithfulness and said, hey, Habakkuk used that word, it must mean that he was talking about the same thing that I am. And so I think I'm just going to quote him and say, this is what he was talking about. But that's not how Paul uses the scripture. A long look at Habakkuk as a whole, as a whole book, and it's not very long. You can read it in one sitting. A long look at it will demonstrate that he was concerned with exactly the same thing that Paul is concerned with here. God's faithfulness to his promises. And he's going to put it in terms of God's work, his out, his work. In the face of an unfaithful people and an impending or ongoing exile. That's what he's concerned about. How is God faithful in light of an impending and ongoing exile and an unfaithful people? The people of Israel. Turn to Habakkuk. Uh, go to the book. Uh, go to the book. We're going to look right at the middle of it. That's where it's going to be quoted first. And then we're going to talk about the larger the larger thing. So in chapter 2, verse 4, this is, this is his response. This is Habakkuk's response to the Lord after he has opened up with a lament. He's basically been accusing God of doing things or not doing things at the beginning. He opens up with a lament. He says, how long will I call for help? And you will not listen. He's talking to the Lord. And this is exactly the same thing that that Paul was dealing with. How is God faithful in light of the unfaithfulness of Israel? The Torah, says Habakkuk, I think this is verse 3. If we had to write the reference 2 or 3, is numb. It's being numb. And its judgments are not carried out, he says. Where in light of this are you, God? In other words, though it's almost unspeakable for the prophet, has your word failed? The answer. A work is working in your days. And if it were recounted to you, you would not believe it. That's the answer. And it begins with the Chaldeans coming in to destroy Israel. That's the work? That's the work? Well, yes, part of it. But that's not it. That's not all of it. It begins with the Chaldeans coming in to destroy Israel. But they too will be judged since they worship idols, chapter 1, verse 11. What then is the response of the prophet? What does he say at the beginning of chapter 2? I will stand on my watch post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run with it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, but it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come and it will not delay. And then our verse is quoted in Romans. Behold, part of it is, behold the puffed up one. His soul is not upright within him but the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. And that is the answer for Habakkuk. The one who is righteous, that is the one who is in the covenant, in God's family, will live by his faithfulness. Either the faithfulness of the prophet in response to God's word, or the faithfulness of God himself. And I think that's why he leaves it intentionally ambiguous within Romans, because it's intentionally ambiguous there. Is it God's faithfulness that a man will live by? Well, yes, it is. Is it his faith that he will live by? Yes, it is. And so Paul leaves it that way. Pretty much exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 1. Except here in Romans 1, Paul himself has seen and is seeing what Habakkuk could only see from a far distance. Namely this, that the work of God, if I had a Uh, board here i'd show you the whole the whole book is built around a three-letter root pei and lamin and and he basically has at the beginning of the book pei and lamin he says i'm working a work in your day and though you it were recounted to you you wouldn't believe it and then in this book the puffed up one is the upal and pei lamin he reverses those consonants and then in chapter three at the beginning of chapter three he says that this prayer of Habakkuk, he says, Revive your work, your pay, I, and Lament. In the midst of days, make it known. And what Paul is doing by quoting this is saying, this is the very work of God. This is the work that we've been looking for. This is the fulfillment of Habakkuk's prayer. The work of God, which he was, that Habakkuk had asked him to revive. In the midst of the days, in the midst of the years, he says, make it known, make it known. The work of God, Habakkuk says, will come through wrath and mercy, exactly what we see working out in Romans. That work of God is being unveiled in the work uh, of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, something only visible to Habakkuk from afar, but it was guaranteed in the scriptures. The one who is righteous, The one who is in the family will live by faithfulness. Faithfulness in response to God's faithfulness to his word. Faithfulness, Habakkuk says, even in the midst of God's wrath and anger, which is also being revealed from heaven. But now it is clear the wrath of God is revealed against uh, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men for their suppression of the truth. What truth? What are they suppressing? The truth of the goodness of King Jesus. That's why the wrath of God will be revealed. It is why he himself has been given authority to judge on that day. Who is he who condemns, Paul asks? Christ Jesus. Is he who died? Yes. Rather, who was raised, and he is at the right hand of God, the place from which he exercises his royal authority, having been vindicated for his faithfulness to the divine plan to rescue mankind. Those who believe will be delivered from the very wrath to come. Now, what I hope that we can continue to do as we, as we go through the book of Romans is to keep this larger picture in mind, keep this picture in mind of what God was doing and is doing through the events of Jesus's death and resurrection, and the way that that Paul is going to show how this works out. If we keep our eye on that, we will, uh, we will succeed in, trans- in, in interpreting this book, and we will see actually that it will make a huge difference in our lives. We will see, for example, how it is in this that not only the righteousness of God is revealed, but our own very life is revealed in the gospel. When we identify with the Messiah, when we die with him and when we rise with him, our lives will take on an identity that Paul intended, that uh, that God himself intends for us to take on.